This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hours. Monday afternoon, I'm Cassie Harford. and today I've got more updates from River Communities on how these high flows are going. I'm living on an island and the boys are living at the, the Kalara Woolshed Hut. So fairly basic, sharing their time with a lot of mozzies. I think uh, mozzies will be a bit of a hallmark of summer this year. We'll uh, hear how things are going in the far west of New South Wales there. And transport has been thrown into chaos by all this rain as well. I'll have an update soon. But first, farmers across the state are praying for pockets of sunshine to get their what is expected to be bumper crop into silos. For some, harvest was already meant to be finished, but recent weather has stood in the way of that. Christabrook farmer Andrew Sargent says it started raining in August and really hasn't stopped. Yeah, so our, our biggest worry at the moment is um, it's going to be shot grain and weather damage lentils. With the rainfall events forecasted nearly every week and have been for nearly every week leading up to now, then, yeah, shot grain's our biggest worry. Leading into the season and hearing that it was going to be one of the biggest, it was, it was going to be a bumper crop, how, how did you feel about hearing that? Were you quite excited or were you, did you trust that sort of information and exactly how do they determine that it's going to be a big crop? Yeah, I guess that was off, off national rainfall forecast, I suppose. Um, whereas here, we started late. Uh, it was dry, cold. Um, it was probably looking to be one of our latest seasons, probably one of our worst seasons. Um, and then sort of around August, it started raining and, and hasn't stopped since. So I guess for us, this will be one of our better years yield-wise, provided we don't get too much more hail damage, but it's not potentially the bumper season that, that other areas are probably looking at. And that's just in the mid-north when you say you think it's, that's more of an issue for the mid-north, or do you think other areas in South Australia other than the mid-north will also not perhaps get that quality I think potentially there'll be quality issues across the state, uh, especially if this rain keeps up for the next the next month or so. Um, as far as the, the late start, I think that was probably more just sort of our area here. I know the Air Peninsula they got good rains early and they got, got crops away, so we were just a bit, a bit late off the marks, which has probably put a bit of a dent in, in what could have been a bumper year. But, um, yeah, I mean, yields will still be will still be good. It's just going to be quality. It's going to be the challenge this year. And poor quality means that that money tree gain's not there. Yeah, so, you know, for wheat, instead of looking at $440 a tonne for our wheat, we might be looking at $320 a tonne for our wheat. So, you know, you're taking 25% straight off the top after all your expenses. So that's that's sort of your profit margin that just just disappears. So, yeah, that's that's our biggest worry is that if we get more rain, we'll start getting downgrades and that's that's going to take the shine off. Yeah. And when you're talking about that profit margin, what, compared to other years, what have your input costs looked like? Oh, I'd say our input costs this year would be at least 50% higher than what they were probably two years ago. I guess, you know, last year was high and this year's been higher again, um, but we'd be, yeah, well over 50% higher than historically. Compared to other years, how hard is it to find those pockets of dryness to get what you need to do done? Oh, it's, it's ridiculous at the moment. Like, it's the middle of November. We'd normally be half, if not three quarters of the way through, um, and you're generally probably running 16 hours a day, whereas at the moment we're probably doing two days a week and probably even then only six or seven hours a day. It's, yeah, it's 
pretty unusual for around here. At the moment when it's on, it's on. So if you get your two days to do your reaping, you're focused on, on getting that done. Um, and then in between, yeah, I guess you're just trying to, uh, sheds as clean as it's ever been. Just trying to get organised so that when, when you do get an opportunity, you, you're ready to go. How closely are you checking the weather gauge? I've stopped looking. I haven't looked today. <laughs> um, yeah, if we just while the sun's out, we'll do what we can and it'll rain again and we'll wait again. Moving forward and in terms of planning, obviously it's sort of out of your hands. It's, it's up to, it is up to the weather to get this off. Um, when do you sort of, if it tracks the way it is, when do you expect to finish? Before Christmas would be nice, but maybe more realistically, well, hopefully before the end of December. But who knows, how many, times, how many more times is it going to rain between now and December? I'll give you an idea from there. It's such a lottery at the moment. Krista Brook Farmer, Andrew Sargent speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. If you're having the latest start you've ever experienced, or perhaps since 1992, let me know how much... Uh, you're, how far behind schedule you are, you can text me 0467 921 Baruta farmer Barry Mudge says these poorer weather conditions have meant his crops are just sitting out there waiting to be reaped. And he says that he's been unable to harvest for the last eight days, which is unheard of in November, particularly for his region, which is usually the, one of the earliest regions in the state. And so we went into the season with a fair bit of optimism. We had good stored soil moisture, so that was, that was pretty good. We had a wonderful start. Unfortunately, though, it got very dry in those middle, middle months, and I think a lot of people had the same issue. So uh, we struggled during July and into August. We'd sown early. We're a very early district. We always sow early here. And uh, by about the middle of August, things were, were getting fairly pear-shaped. Uh, but then it started raining again, which created an interesting sort of dilemma. So essentially, as we moved towards harvest, we actually had two crops sitting out there. One was was almost, well, was ready to reap by about the beginning of October, and there was all this regrowth coming up through it, which wasn't ready to reap. And, and so we've, in terms of um, the cereal harvest, we've been sitting there for about the last six weeks, unable to do anything because we've had all this green wheat through it. Now, we we're fortunate enough to have quite a reasonable sized lentil program this year and we got all those off, albeit the last quarter or so got knocked around by the weather. We've had roughly between 100 and 150 millimetres here in the last six weeks, which is just totally unseasonable, but it's just the, one of those things that happens. Sometimes you get wet harvest and the last one we, we looked back on, it was 1992, it was a really wet harvest and this one's sort of equating something along similar lines, so it's been a bit of a battle. So, but, um, if I was polite, if, yeah, polite, I'd call it, uh, yeah, a bit of a battle. If I was impolite, I'd call it something else. <laughs> like many other farmers at the moment, Bruder Farmer Barry Mudge speaking with Dimitri at Panagiotaris. There, 150 millimetres in basically November is uh, a lot of rain. If you are well behind schedule to what you'd normally do, let me know. Text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. It is coming up to 12 minutes past 12. Now we'll head to the far west of the state because as this rain spreads across New South Wales, water levels are continuing to rise in the Darling River in the far west. Since last Friday, the State Emergency Service has issued an evacuation order for people from Tilpa. Julie McClure it runs Kalara Station near Telpa, which is around 300 kilometres from Broken Hill and uh, has been getting around by boat lately. She spoke to Yusuf Saudi about how she's been separated from her family as they divide up tasks for their station. The river is still increasing in height and more so it's spreading out further. Yet to 
peak at Burke, but we expect that to in the coming days. Our situation is that we're basically boating everywhere. The uh, the airstrip's too short to land on here at the house. I'm living on an island and the boys are living at the the Kalara Woolshed Hut. So it's fairly basic, sharing their time with a lot of mozzies. A lot of mozzies. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot of insects around, a lot of birds and... uh, yeah, it's uh, probably not the most pleasant of living conditions at present, but um, yeah, nonetheless, it's, uh, it is what it is, yeah. And how has your cropping been impacted? What kind of cropping does that include? This current cropping year, we put in about 3,500 acres of oats, milling oats, and, we, and that was on the floodplain and on a, on a lake bed. There we put a bit of canola in as well. We put some um, hundred hectares of canola in under under pivots, and we also grew, grew a green manure crop. And we just planted some some sorghum. But we baled about three and a half thousand, three thousand bales of hay on the on the lake. And um, unfortunately, uh, all of that lake area and uh, the floodplain area is uh, absolutely totally submerged. But apart from what you were able to salvage, what's kind of happened to the rest of the oats and the canola? Yeah, that's uh, that's under about eight feet of water at the moment. That floodplain is totally inundated, and the uh, the lake has filled and spilled. So you know, look, that's the nature of the cropping that we do at Tilpa. But you know, we've seen it some major losses upstream and downstream of us, and. That's what farming on a floodplain, um, the risk you take, I guess. And so you say that you're the only one on the station at the moment. How is that impacting you and what are you kind of doing to recover the station at the moment? So I'm, I live, I'm in at the house and, and Justin and the boys are about 6k out living at the hut. Look, we're trying to, um, as the rain will allow, and uh, we've been able to to move stock and just try and continue on with the daily, you know, the daily maintenance and running of a livestock property, making sure stock are out of flood water and, and moving them to high ground or moving them to, to places where, you know, in, when roads are passable, that we'll be able to uh, sell some stock and fill up the cooling jar again. And so what are you doing at the moment with your station? How are you maintaining... Yeah, yeah, so we're getting around by boat. Um, we're getting around by um, boat and motorbike. And, yeah, the, the, the challenge, we're just sort of trying to, you know, do what we do, but with the additional challenge of flood water. And, and we've, we've, today we've got a livestock agent up taking some delivery of some little use that we sold and just uh, trying to get them ready to, if there's a window of opportunity for to get a, a truck in, we'll, um, we'll move those as soon as possible. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit challenging. Where it's dry, you just keep on doing what you do. And you're moving around by boat as this water has really inundated a lot of your crops. How does it feel just contrasting to the past couple of years where where that kind of stuff is not quite as common? Yeah, yeah, look, it's, it's a real double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, the, uh, the what could have been and what might have been and then, then I guess once you get over the disappointment, you sort of look forward to uh, what the opportunities that will present in the future. You know, the, the body of feed that will be here all along the, all along the anywhere that's been flooded, but uh, the uh, the feed is going to be almost unquantifiable. And well, 
mozzies, mozzies are probably playing havoc on, are definitely playing havoc on, on the animals. They don't really respond well to being continuously bitten, so that's um, that's a bit of a challenge as well, keeping your, your livestock in, in good good condition, even though you've got fantastic feed. It's, they're certainly not booming ahead like you'd expect because of the uh, because of the mozzies, yeah. Yeah, and so why are you the only one on Kalara Station at the moment? Well, I'm just at the house and, you know, looking after the animals and the boys, there's seven and seven, eight of them out at the, uh, out of the huts, out of the wool shed, that uh, are sort of keeping the wheels turning and maintaining machinery and getting ready for the next cropping opportunity and, and uh, keeping our livestock well and safe and, yeah, just trying to keep the wheels turning. Julie McClure from Kalara Station near Tilpa speaking with Yusuf Saudi. We'll get to weather shortly, but staying with the, the river just to the other end of the Murray-Darling Basin at Jervois, just south of Murray Bridge. The community is watching and waiting there as well as are obviously all the communities along the river. Even in times of normal flow, that community relies on their 17.8-kilometre levy to protect their towns and the surrounding 1,800 hectares of farmland on reclaimed land, which much of it was actually originally established under soldier settlement schemes in the early 1900s. The newly elected mayor of the rural city of Murray Bridge and Jervois Lake local, Wayne Thorley, says the community needs more information to help them cope with the next few months, but they have faith in their historic levy. Our community is very confident they will do the job at this point of time on the flow rates are being predicted to us. We know there's always the risk that they may breach, but we, we're confident by being able to maintain the, con- the condition of the levy, then we're confident it will do the job it's intended to do. In 1974 and 75, our levy didn't breach then, and although it did have a couple of near misses, but overall it did the job it was required. As on the Jervois Irrigation Area, the local irrigation trust, uh, they're already organising people, to, a roster of people to actually keep an eye on the levy and to ensure there's no leakages. Oddly enough, foxholes and things like that can cause significant problems for us. Some of the other areas that are concerning us is our irrigation drainage pumps. They are actually powered by electricity and they're down here on the river's edge and we're understanding what SA Power Networks wishes to do with those supply to those pumps is something we're, we're not clear on yet what that really means to us. You're looking upstream at what's happening? Yes, yeah, so well, our, our, our systems here are related to our pumps being for drainage, they're not for putting water on. We actually have to pump water off most of the year rounds, especially after irrigation. We, we've always had in high rivers seepage and we, we understand what it is. Our drainage systems need to manage that. What sort of support do you want from the government right now? I think having information, good information, clear information and an understanding of what our community has here. Last Tuesday night we had a uh, irrigators operations meeting here and which was really good. We had uh, primary industries here, we had uh, South Australian Dairymen's Association here, Landscapes SA. However, concerning to us is the fact that the Department of Environment and Water were not here. They are responsible for the control and management of the levies and they're our first access point normally to what goes on in maintenance and control of the levy. It would have been probably very useful for them to be able to relay messages direct to property owners. And it's about what 
does SAPM mean to us when they say they'll cut the power off? Is that two weeks beforehand? Is that a month beforehand? Or is it a day or so before it may be needed to be done? Uh, these are the questions we're looking for answers to. The Trust is saying it needs to get prepared and organise a roster of people who can monitor and observe what goes on on the levy. I think DEW is keen for that to happen. Now, obviously, uh, you have people living in the community who are always much more aware and alert than people who may not necessarily live here. And I think uh, it was just a positive feel that we, could, we can beat this if we work properly and do, do a good job and work hard. If you lose the power with the irrigators, what would that mean in terms of feed and things like that? Well, for us, it means that we need to have an alternative strategy and that's not been clear to us and who pays for that strategy. Uh, that needs to become clearer for us. You know, at, this, at this point in time, is it, is it the property owners that need to consider and pay for this? Is this the, something that state or federal government will give some funding towards? Uh, these are questions we'd like to know now so we can be confident where we go forward. It's, it's all very well giving, throwing money at something after the event, but it's too late then. It really should be done beforehand. Mayor of the rural city of Murray Bridge and a local Wayne Thorley speaking with Carolyn Horn about some of the uh, concerns from the community there at the uh, lower end of the Murray-Darling Basin on the River Murray there, which is in full flow at the moment and will only rise in coming weeks and months. Before we get to weather, just a reminder about uh, theft, farm theft. Fuel tools, motorbikes and farms have become common targets for thieves in South Australia in the last year, but with many not reporting thefts, it's hard for police to get an accurate understanding of the scope of the problem. Limestone Coast Police Superintendent Campbell Hill says he wants farmers to be reporting theft even if there's a low chance of goods being recovered. We know that there is victimisation happening all across regional South Australia and the impacts of it can go well beyond any dollar value. So we know that there are psychological impacts to people working remote on farming properties, whether they're property owners, property managers that are living on the farm or people that are trying to earn a living in the industry. We know that it's having an impact and that, that lends itself all the way up to um, aquaculture industry, forestry, a, a, across the spectrum of primary produce and, and agriculture and everything. I suppose our focus is very much about the need for us to try and chip into that dark figure of crime. In the rural crime space, it's an internationally recognised phenomenon where around about 80% of crime that's occurring, but we're just not hearing about it. And that's at an international level. So peer-reviewed research has, has put those numbers up. So really, our main message for people is that we, we understand the lack of reporting comes from, at times, either a lack of faith in police services to investigate it. We understand that these are rural properties and sometimes police officers aren't able to get out there straight away. It may be a day or two before they can actually get there. So we know that that, in a way, impacts on people's confidence in the police. But in, in in 2022, with our advances in technology, with the ways that people are able to report things either online, over the phone, via the internet, and anonymously through um, initiatives such as Crime Stoppers, that we've got an opportunity to gather a lot of information and intelligence. It won't always guarantee that we're going to be able to uh, apprehend people for isolated matters, but what it does do is paint us a picture of where, geographically, talking to adjoining jurisdictions interstate, we can work out where we've got trends, and then we can better deploy our resources. And why are rural areas and farms such attractive targets for theft? So we're talking about motivated individuals. So we've got people that are that are criminally inclinated or people that are inclined to steal things. And really it comes back into those, again, those victimology principles of a lack of a capable guardian. Now that can be anything from physical people on properties to be a deterrent, but also things like the absence of CCTV, signage, proper security and, and lockable gates and taking keys out of farm vehicles. Those sorts of real basic crime prevention things. When they're not in play, there is an opportunity and an intersection of time and space. And if you've got someone that's criminally motivated, then, then crime occurs and that, that 
that is a phenomenon that ranges across the spectrum of different types of offending. So when, when you translate that to a rural crime lens, you're looking at areas that are remote, they're regional. Um, again, if people are from the land themselves, they know how to target certain areas. They know when the busy periods are, when people are out on the land or mustering and, and busy doing other tasks, there is an opportunity for people to victimise and that's ultimately what our concern is. What have been the common targets of things that are actually being stolen? We have reports of everything from um, stock. We've had reports of pigs being stolen you know, in the last 12 to 18 months, but more commonly and from a limestone coast lens in particular in terms of our daily crime reporting, we are often seeing hundreds of litres of diesel going at times from you know centre pivots or, or diesel facilities where again they're not stored close to a house or sheds and things like that where, where they are in the middle of nowhere and they can be accessed easily. So we're seeing high amounts of tools, motorbikes, so those portable items that can be transferred and where they're not marked and where they're not identifiable they can move hands very very easy for very good money for people. We really encourage people to take keys out of machines, we want people to be locking sheds, we want people to be locking gates and erecting CCTV and, and lighting to make it harder for the crooks at the end of the day. Limestone Coast Police Superintendent Campbell Hill speaking with Elsie Adamo. Now to weather, and uh, there seems to still be some wind around, but it's winding down by the looks of things. But the uh, duty forecaster, Mark Analak, has the latest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. It certainly was a very windy weekend, and as you say, conditions are starting to ease. Um, Over the weekend, we did see wind gusts of 90 to 100 kilometres an hour spread out over a vast area of the state, and we're now seeing those strongest winds uh, contracting towards the southeast. Um, In terms of rainfall at the weekend, there was quite a bit uh, since Friday morning. Uh, in the three days since Friday morning, we've we've seen falls of the order of 40 to 60 millimetres across the Mount Lofty ranges, uh, 20 to 40 millimetres generally across southern agricultural areas, and, and more like sort of 10 to 20 millimetres across the northern agricultural area. Um, there have been a couple of other places across the far north that have seen a little bit as well. So, um, yeah, quite quite well spread out. So that leads us to where we are now. A high-pressure system south of the Bight is still forcing quite a fresh southwesterly wind across the southeast corner of the state. We do have a severe weather warning current for for damaging winds, and that's for people in the upper southeast, lower southeast, and parts of Kangaroo Island and Murraylands districts as we speak. But as I said, the winds are gradually easing back and I expect over the next few hours that area will slowly contract southwards and clear overnight tonight. For the rest of this week um, we'll see that high pressure system gradually move in from the west. Some showers on the eastern flank of that high will continue across southern agricultural areas. Um, They'll sort of ease and become sort of less frequent uh, over the next two to three days um, as that high pressure system moves eastwards. And as it does, uh, we'll see quite cool c- c- uh, temperatures. Today, through the mid-north and parts of the Riverland, temperatures are of the order of 8 to 12 degrees below average for this time of year. Tomorrow, more like 6 to 10 degrees below average for this time of year. So cool conditions across the, uh, across the southern parts of the state. Later in the week, that high-pressure system will move over western Victoria. The winds will turn a bit more east-northeasterly. The weather will clear, uh, temperatures will start to rise and we'll see warm to hot conditions developing across the state Thursday, Friday. And that's ahead of another 
thundery change that will make its way across the western parts of the state on Friday and probably moving into central and eastern parts early Saturday morning before cooler southwesterly winds bring uh, showers to agricultural areas through the mid to latter part of the weekend and early part of next week. So um, in short, Cassie, we are in an easing trend. We still have a couple of warnings out. The severe weather warning is current. We also have a sheep grazier's advice out, but conditions are on the ease. We'll see temperatures rising uh, later this week and uh, then another thundery change next weekend, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Mark Anlak from the Bureau of Meteorology. And yes, there is that damaging wind warning for the upper southeast, the lower southeast parts of Kangaroo Island and Murray Lands districts. There's also uh, an update on the Riverland power situation. It had been restored over the weekend, but now there's another outage in Renmark affecting about 1,300 people. And that's estimated to be restored at 12.45 tomorrow morning. So a bit of an update there in the far west of New South Wales. The upper western's weather's going to be partly cloudy. Winds are Picking up in the uh, through the day to about twenty to thirty k's an hour. Overnight temperatures will fall to around seven degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low twenties. The lower western will be mostly sunny, and temperatures there falling to seven to twelve degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the low to mid twenties. We've got more to come on the country. We're looking at trucking across the country in the wake of all this weather as we approach twelve thirty. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. I do hope this wet and windy weather hasn't done too much damage at your place. It is making harvest difficult across South Australia, but the East Coast, it's causing massive transport issues and it's making it hard to move goods across the country. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things, but this is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event I've dealt with in my time here. More on that soon. And the, is the trade freeze with China entering a thawing out phase? I'll take a look at that soon. But first, to news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, SA Power Network says that it's working with irrigators in the Riverland to ensure that pumping stations can keep operating if flooding cuts power supplies. Spokesman Paul Roberts says SA Power Networks has to act if power lines are submerged by floodwaters. River Murray flows into SA are forecast to be up to 175 gigalitres per day at their peak. The State Planning Commission will begin consultation on 30-year plans for six regions across South Australia from next month. The plans will determine where the state government will invest in housing and social infrastructure based on economic growth projections. The Planning Minister Nick Champion says draft plans will be out for public consultation by the middle of next year. And a woman has been rescued from a 12-metre-deep well trying to rescue a cat which managed to climb out by itself after she had climbed in. She became stranded after using a rope to lower herself into the well and being unable to climb out again on a property at Gawler West north of Adelaide. The Metropolitan Fire Service helped the woman get out. She was not harmed. More news at one o'clock.
Thanks for that, Mark Coleman there. He'll have more with your news headlines at one o'clock. Now, trucking companies are finding it increasingly difficult to move freight across eastern Australia, and uh, South Australia is being affected by this as well. Flooding has caused key transport routes, including the Sturt Highway around Hay to close, and many other roads are badly damaged as well. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager, Ben Fenner, told Kelly Hollingworth it's a huge logistical challenge for the company that has trucks covering around 160 kilometres in a 24-hour period. With the Sturt Highway closed to all traffic west of Hay, uh, meaning there's significant diversions in place to Sydney and Brisbane um, from Mildura and Adelaide, which was predominantly where we operate out of. Um, Generally, our trucks operate via the new highway. However, we're now heading south of Barranald, across to Deniliquin, up into Wagga and on to Brisbane for there adding about 400 kilometres um, tra- uh, travel time, I should say, for one way. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty challenging. Have you ever come across anything like this before in the time that you've been in the trucking industry? I've spent 11 years here at GTS and um, I haven't seen anything like it myself and the people I talk to who are more experienced around me share similar stories. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things, but... This is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event I've dealt with in my time here. We're sitting in what is normally your boardroom. What's happening in here at the moment? And to paint a picture, we're staring at a big screen, which is essentially the live traffic websites that New South Wales operates, so you can see what conditions are like where you've got vehicles. Yeah, it's normally a boardroom for business, but I've, uh, I've hijacked that as in my role from now, so... It's a bit of a control centre for us. Um, we've got fantastic tools with live traffic. Um, we've got the RMS, local police, who are really, really helping us and giving us information as fast as they possibly can. But, yeah, a lot of time is spent here assessing what roads may be out of action or potentially be coming out of action and, um, yeah, allows us to be a little more agile and make better decisions. Now, I imagine that road conditions don't change 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. So what is a typical workday looking like for you? We work in uh, massive hours from everyone from our director um, right through our business. Our team's working incredibly hard. Um, Our drivers are working as hard as they possibly can, safely and legally. Um, But, yeah, we're all uh, working around the clock. How do you keep on top of this and know what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's my role predominantly now. I've basically, basically turned into watching weather all the time and preparing for the next route and next contingency and having that prepared ready for my team to go in case we get another constraint or or road closure or diversion. So that's predominantly my role now is um, allowing us to be set up for success and to do the job safely by preparing accordingly. Diesel isn't cheap at the moment. If you're talking about a truck going to Brisbane having to do an extra 400 kilometres, there must be huge additional costs placed on the business? There are significant commercial impacts, there's, there's no doubt about it. The fuel price in this country is still really volatile, um, so we've got to be agile with fuel levies, those sorts of things, but the additional um, distances travelled now, we, we have to start to share some of that cost. We can't absorb that as a business, and the rest of the industry will be doing the same thing, so it's just another, another challenge we have to face, but um, we can't wear it all, unfortunately. Having the roads open is one thing, but having them in a condition that you can probably travel on is another. 
what kind of situations are your drivers coming across and are they documenting that for you along the way? They are, uh, within reason. Um, we, we ask them to focus on their tasks solely, but um, our, all of our trucks are fitted with um, front-facing front and rear-facing cameras so we can assess um, road conditions at a, from a live, live level, which is fantastic um, with, with, with that feature. Um, but the, the images we see of potholes, parts of roads missing, uh, it's fairly confronting and for it's, it's quite unsafe for a lot of road users. Um, so we just try and do our best, but our average, average speeds of our vehicles are well down and, and that's by design just to do the job safely. In normal conditions, freight would also be moved by rail. Is much of that still happening at the moment, given that some train lines have also been affected by flooding? Rail is severely impacted at the moment and a lot of this country's freight does operate via rail, predominantly to the west, but rail tracks are really, really impacted and we've, we've seen a big demand for our services to head to the west um, where normally the rail providers would head. So yeah, there's big impacts. This would normally be a hugely busy time for you as companies get ready for Christmas. They obviously need to have stock on their shelves to sell. Is that putting you under even more pressure? We're 25 working days from Christmas Day, so this industry is very, very much under the pump at this time of the year in a normal operating time. Our customers are fantastic. We have great relationships and partnerships. Um, they, they allow us additional travel times, etc., etc., but the, the, the whole network is disrupted. So the, from us um, to a distribution centre right down to the um, supermarket shelf, everyone's feeling the pinch. But, um, yeah, we've got our morale still quite high. There's some fantastic people in our organisation and the industry uh, who are all working very hard. But, yeah, some people are getting a little bit tired, but we'll be right, we'll get there. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager, Ben Fenner, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. Now, truck drivers are facing a lot of things, not just the road diversions and potholes. And A new study published today shows that truck driving is bad for your health. A Monash University study has found that if nothing is done to improve the health of Australia's truck drivers, 6,067 lives and $2.6 billion in productivity could be lost over the next 10 years. Study lead Ross Isles told Amy Phillips truck drivers want to eat and exercise but are largely prevented. There isn't one simple answer to help drivers to be healthy. And it's not just about necessarily, you know, drive, delivering an app to the drivers or, or, or just helping the drivers to, to be healthy. It can't just fall upon the driver's shoulders. We actually need a system-wide approach to actually, you know, make it easier for drivers by reducing the pressures in terms of, um, you know, needing to be somewhere on time um, and actually providing, you know, good quality facilities for drivers to be able to stop and refresh and, and actually show them that we, we value what they do because without trucks, Australia stops. You also say, though, that, of course, servos are profit-driven. How does that play into this narrative? Well, what we, uh, of course, um, you know, service stations, they, they are businesses, but what we need to make sure is that um, drivers have the opportunity to choose between um, good, healthy options and um, rather than those the, the quick, uh, high-saturated fat-type foods. Um, and, but that's only that's only one part of the picture is is what drivers are eating. There's other pressures that fall on drivers. Uh, and when we spoke to drivers, one of the things that really struck me was that drivers know that they're not always 
respected by the general public for, for the role that they play and, and what they do. Everything in our houses, uh, everything that we eat, at some stage has spent time on a truck. Yet what drivers feel like, if there's, if there's ever an accident and there's a truck on the scene, that mm. the driver is pres- presumed guilty um, rather than, um, than just happen to be a bystander because they spend so much time on the road. Which would absolutely have to play into their health, wouldn't it? Absolutely. That, that pressure weighs down on drivers significantly. Uh, and we know um, oftentimes that you know, men in particular have difficulty talking about their mental health. Uh, part of our research, we, we, we spoke to partners of drivers and they told us that, uh, that when it, it means when a driver comes home, he might be angry uh, or, or you know, quick to anger. He doesn't realise that it's necessarily that his mental health, that's how he's dealing with all the pressure that, that, that's, um, that's put upon him and that he has to deal with at work every day. And so we know that uh, we can do better in terms of supporting drivers with their mental health as well. So what's your recommendations? Uh, is this a private or a public sector issue to address? I, I think it's both. I think on the on the public sector side of things, we need to ensure that drivers have adequate facilities and rest stops. And I think there's actually um, a requirement for, from a almost like a, an industry-wide public uh, media campaign to um, to help people to treat drivers with the respect that they deserve. Um, privately, I think um, it's up to employers to actually show drivers that they actually want to support their health and well-being. And the way to think of it is, and, and what we've tried to do with our, our latest research, is show that from a financial point of view, it makes just as much sense to look after what's at the front of the truck uh, as it does to pay attention to what's going in the back of the truck. Mm. And there's a dollars and cents argument to that. Most of those drivers are actually driving in small companies. So we know there are some big players, but it's a really sort of distributed workforce. So we really need to pay attention to getting to get out to those family operators that might operate two or three trucks to make sure they're doing the best they can to maintain their health. And are they drivers mostly male? Mostly, most drivers are male. It's a male-dominated workforce, but there is a, a very important proportion of female drivers as well who are, who are facing exactly the same pressures as, as the male drivers. We've focused on men because of our, our research was mostly responded to by, um, by men, uh, and we figure we're, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start with tackling the men, and, um, and we obviously we, we get the input of, of the women uh, as well. But uh, it is a male-dominated workforce. Rosales, their Associate Professor of the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University, speaking with Amy Phillips there about this study that's been done that does have some rather uh, alarming um, forecasts for what could happen if changes aren't made to uh, the way Australia's truck drivers go about their job. And uh, it does seem like there's uh, some plans there in place, but it's a very important job that keeps Australia moving. So hopefully some of those will have a positive effect. It is 17 minutes to one. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Bowling! Wicket's tumbling. Live. Another hundred. And ad free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Well, I think some people are daring to dream that perhaps this trade freeze with China is about to end a thawing out phase, uh, at least the industries that have been affected by tariff impositions. Last week, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, held a meeting with the Chinese President, Xi Jinping, for the first of its kind in six years. The Australian farm and mining sectors are hopeful that the normalisation of trade relations is now underway after some issues, uh, missteps perhaps by the previous government. Chief Economist at the University of Technology of Sydney, Tim Harcourt, told Michael Condon there is reason for optimism. It's a step in the right direction and even allowing for COVID where no one met anyone, it's still a long time. Uh, Clearly Australia had been frozen out before COVID uh, and then things got worse as the Morrison government called for an inquiry into the causes of COVID and then we had some of the trade sanctions. So yeah, even with COVID, it's significant. It's been a long time. Is it about politics? The new Prime Minister and Xi Jinping can can say, uh, let's start talking again. Maybe let's have trade relaxation because we've, it's, uh, we're, we're talking to a different political leader? It is an opportunity. I mean, it has happened with existing Prime Ministers before. For instance, uh, John Howard got off on the wrong foot with China's leadership and he sat down with them and said, let's start again, and did. And then we had the LNG deal, which was a $25 billion deal at the time. So even existing prime ministers can sit down with China and say, let's start again. But it's true that we had the election, and so I think China knew that was an opportunity, and I think Australia did as well. Look, I think uh, the important thing is with China is that um, it's a global power, and you've got to engage with China. You can't have a foreign policy or trade policy without them but you don't have to do everything China says, and I don't think they expect us to. So I I think what Albanese has done as Prime Minister is that he's shown China the right level of cordial respect, but he hasn't uh, hasn't one iota reduced Australia's national sovereignty. He's been very clear that these are Australia's interests, and important to stick to your guns on that. And same with your education, your universities, uh, your elections. You don't want any power involved in that at all. You know, even the... Adelaide City Council elections, there was stories of, you know, Chinese influence. You know, you, you really don't want that in your local institutions. This is about trade. This is about feeding the world, providing energy to Chinese consumers, providing them a quality education. It's not about getting entangled in each other's institutions. Now, the farm sector is saying, I mean, the, we haven't seen too many concerns about coal and iron ore. They still wanted to buy coal and iron ore because they can't buy it from anywhere else and they get a pretty pretty good deal from Australia. Uh, but they haven't been buying barley, they haven't been buying wine, they buy a bit of wheat on the sly. Is it a big game changer for agriculture? Look, you're right. I mean, China uh, needs Australia. Uh, they've, they've got food security issues. China needs Australia. They've got energy security issues. So coal, iron ore, gas, wool, they have to buy uh, mm. from us. So they really went after barley and lobsters and types of things that they didn't regard as super necessities, but there were still $20 billion worth of trade boycotts. But at the end of the day, um, I think they know uh, that Australia is a reliable agricultural supplier. And we've seen during the Russia-Ukraine standoff and war and the, you know, removal of Ukraine from the world trading system as farmers have got off their tractors and picked up rifles and so on, that um, Australia feeds the world. You know, we're one of the, with Argentina and a few others, we're one of the significant agricultural producers in the world. And China knows that. They know that um, countries like South Korea and Japan have, you know, food security issues. They're close to Australia. 
So uh, China needs Australia as an agricultural supplier. So we're sending in. You think we're going to be sending in more beef, more wheat, more maybe uh, barley will restart and wine will restart. I mean, how long do you think before there's a change? Look, I know the Qingdao uh, Beer Festival in, in Shandong Province relies on South Australian barley to make the beer. So right, they're not going to want to run out of beer at a beer festival. So <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, slowly, we've already seen a relaxing of some of the boycotts, but that will just unravel now that Xi Jinping has met Anthony Albanese uh, at, at, the, at the summit. China's just going to slowly ease out of that position that they had, you know, without losing face and without being seen as a back down, just, you know, slowly normalise relations. And on that theme, you're actually, you're actually meeting with the Chinese ambassador. So is that a sign too that they want to talk to Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been doing a, a, a TV series after the pandemic, The Bigger Picture, and uh, I talked to various Australian and Chinese farmers and business people, politicians, ambassadors, and so on. And I had a call into the Chinese ambassador for some time, and uh, I got a call last week saying it's on. So, and, and along with the Trade Minister Don Farrell from the Australian side. So clearly, you know, there's a bit of a normalisation of, uh, of relations. And my, my show goes to everyone in China. Uh, you know, it's got a, a global audience of, you know, 460 million people. So. Oh, is that all? Is that all? Yeah, that's right. So, so clearly, he, you know, he wants to show that uh, he wants to engage. So I think that's interesting that um, we're now seeing more engagement on the Chinese side. Um, so it's not that we've neglected our friends and trading partners like South Korea and Japan. It's just that uh, a lot of energy has been put into China. And now, you know, we can renew some of the very good ties that we have with you know, South Korea, Japan, ASEAN, India, and you know the emerging world, Latin America, and and, and the Middle East, and, and so on. I think a lot of it's to do with, um, you know, if relations are good, and you're friendly. Well, you don't have to put that much time into it, you know. Uh, and but you can't just let it sort of drift. So I think and, that's what they're doing. And in a way, post the sort of fro the sort of freezing of trade relations with China, it was uh, an opportunity to casting it more widely too when we found other markets for some of our produce yeah look we did with barley and we did with wheat um and of course i mean russia ukraine war meant that there Mm. was no you know ukrainian wheat on the world market so australia's filled that gap australia's role you know as an agricultural exporter again in helping the world with this global food crisis due to ukraine not being in the world market you know i've heard of australian wheat and barley and cereals in Yemen and Nigeria and Egypt and Indonesia and uh, as well as in our traditional trading partners in Northeast Asia. So clearly Australian farmers have played a very important role in, you know, keeping the world food market going. So once you get a leg into those markets, uh, it, it might be something that you can we can build on for the future too and spread our risk a bit. Yeah, I think it allows us to form a beachhead in those markets and then we, and we can grow them. Uh, we found that during the Asian financial crisis of 97, we were able to get beachheads in different different markets. And, uh, of course, um, you know, Australia's high quality. Our agriculture is very productive. Our farmers are the most, you know, highest levels of productivity in the world. So once we're there, we tend to stick there. Some interesting thoughts there from the Chief Economist at UTS, Tim Harcourt. And Tim was formerly a Chief Economist at Austrade, so he has had a vast amount of experience there. And it sounds like his podcast does go quite widely. Might be uh, worth a bit of a listen there. It could be something quite interesting. Finally, today, uh, we... Uh, 
did hear from the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, around Australia's plan to end plastic pollution by 2040. The news was met with a positive response from the nation's forestry sector who work to find fossil fuel alternatives. South Australian Forest Products Association CEO Nathan Payne believes that the plan will move rapidly over the next few years. Globally, the race is on to identify opportunities to create biochemicals. That's when we use our our woody biomass to create alternate forms of things like plastic. I guess the better way of saying it would be eco-plastics. There's this massive potential for us to actually replace a lot of our fossil fuel-based products with products that are derived from fibre. So whether that's plastics in supermarkets with paper bags, all the way through to creating these biochemicals which will replace fossil fuel products in, you know, all those critical things that we do need in our lives. But, you know, we obviously don't want to be using plastic. We want to be using more environmentally efficient chemicals that are better for the environment. So how well is the industry in South Australia poised at the moment to take advantage of this? We're certainly working towards it. You know, this is a rapid move. Under the former government, we saw the end of plastic straws and replaced with cardboard straws. So that's obviously a step in the right direction and industry is moving at pace to identify the opportunities that will arise. One of the things that we've secured out of this current state government is $2 million of funding for domestic manufacturing and infrastructure master plan. And one of the things that that master plan is going to look at is how do we get more involved in biochemicals and this move. So there's a focus on biochemicals being produced as a byproduct from the forestry products of the produced here? Yep, so woody biomass. I mean, it's basically all the leftover stuff that would either, you know, go into a a low-value product or, even worse case scenario, be left on the floor of the forest. So the slash and the prunings and the trimmings. There's all this fibre out there. We we need to go through an exercise of... We understand how much this woody biomass exists at mills as part of the residue of processing. We do need to go through a process of understanding exactly how much is out there on the forest floor. But what we do know is that there's a lot and there's a lot we will need to do with it in the future. As an economy and as a community, we do transition from fossil fuel-based and plastic-based sources to biochemicals. And can this be achieved in the southeast, where a lot of the forestry products are generated? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I actually met with Goran Ruse, who's a thinker in residence in South Australia many years ago, but who's kind of an expert in this area. Uh, and, you know, we're looking at actually taking a, uh, look, looking at a study tour over to the Scandinavian countries where they're already doing this and saying, okay, what do we need to do here in South Australia to make this happen? We know that, you know, I mean, number one thing that you need to do this is woody biomass, and we've, we've got that. Uh, the next step will be actually identifying what are the market-based opportunities and how do we then remove impediments for that to happen. So, you know, do we need to improve power connections? Do we need to upgrade our, our road and rail infrastructure to enable, you know, access to, to customers? You know, there are some extra pieces of work, but certainly... You know, the number one precursor that you need is, is the woody biomass, and we have that. So when do you think we can start to see some action being taken to establish some of these processing facilities down here in the southeast? My expectation is we're going to see uh, rapid movement on this over the next couple of years. The support from government and the, and the form there is, is, you know, we largely have that. On the one hand, we've got this $10 million of the domestic manufacturing master plan that's going to identify the specific opportunities for industry to step in. The other thing we've got from the state government is a commitment to $15 million for a new centre for excellence 
Systems is going to deliver R&D, and some of that R&D is going to be in this space where the industry and the academics work together to identify this opportunity and actually see that opportunity realised. You mentioned that R&D centre. Where's that based? So that's going to be based in Mount Gambia. So we're actually doing the work uh, at the moment, but it's likely to be based, well, the expectation is it'll be based at the UniSA TAFE location on Wireless Road uh, in Mount Gambia. So there's a commitment for $2.5 million for the physical form of the centre plus $12.5 million over 10 years for R&D. This is in addition to the extra money that the state and the federal government have tipped into the National Institute of Forest Products Innovation in Mount Gambia. There was $3 million put in for that two months ago. Uh, And on top of that, the federal government has committed to $100 million into the National Institute that will be based in Launceston. Um, But what we do know is there will be more money for R&D flowing into Mount Gambia We're looking at everything from splinters to structures. So how do we use hardwood fibre and softwood fibre to create engineered wood products um, that adds value? I mean, ultimately, what we want as an industry is to ensure that every stick of fibre grown in the Green Triangle is processed and value-added in the Green Triangle. That's the way we create more jobs. We create a cleaner and greener environment by removing the carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in solid products. And we deliver a better outcome for not just the community in Mount Gambia and the Limestone Coast, but also South Australia and more broadly nationally. South Australian Forest Products Association CEO Nathan Payne speaking with Nicholas Ward. Now, you may have heard about the power outage that was affecting 1,300 properties in Renmark. That has been repaired. So now there are just a few patches without electricity affecting about 180 customers in the Riverland. They are yet to be connected. So hopefully that will happen soon because it's certainly very uh, annoying and uh, and sometimes uh, can be quite uh, devastating to lose your power. So uh, hopefully that power is returned soon. That's about all we have time for on the Country Hour today. But Caroline Winter has more this afternoon. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Cass. Good to hear that uh, that power has been restored in the Riverland to most people, isn't it? We're going... We're Absolutely. Going, <laughs> we're going to head down to Manham. Uh, I was there over the weekend. So we're going to take a look at how preparations are going in that part of the river system for the flooding. I spoke to some uh, some people, some residents, some businesses, a uh, little bit of uncertainty. They're not quite sure uh, the answers to the questions that they're asking, but they have got a, a meeting tonight. And so hopefully there'll be some clarity around that. And Cass, have you thought about Christmas presents yet? Uh, when I don't, I try not to until December, but now that there's a lot of sales on in November, it does make you think maybe you need to capitalize on the sales. Jump so, in. Yes, starting to think about it. So I'm wondering, would CDs be on the list? You know, compact discs. <laughs> no, no, no. Guess what? They're making a comeback. Oh, like vinyl. <laughs> they're the next, they're the new vinyl. <laughs> I spotted on Facebook, a friend of mine said that her grandchildren had been asking for CDs and I was like, hmm, interesting. How do they even play them these days? This is the question. We're going to answer those questions. Uh, and also it is the 40th year of the CD. So it's kind of timely that they should be making a comeback on such an auspicious occasion. Absolutely. Well, I've I've still got actually a CD player in my car, so I do still have CDs in my car, the ones that aren't scratched to smithereens. Well, if your husband is listening, that's you sorted. Cass would like some CDs for <laughs> Christmas. So we'll be talking about that and we will be asking you, our listeners, uh, what you'd like to bring back today as the start of our campaign for this week. 
Wonderful. Well, keep listening to your ABC local radio. There'll be more updates through the afternoon about what the weather's doing as well, if necessary. But keep listening or go online to abc.net.au slash rural. There's lots of great information there too. That's all I have time for, but we're approaching one o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.